<laughs> now we're good. Frozen. Is the guy still back there? <laughs> we're eventually going to turn back to Daniel. Chapter 8. It's moving now. Live. Oh, there we go. Excellent. Yes. So um, anyway, as I was saying, the Lord will help us give us something to latch on to. And as some of us were talking during the interlude there, um, I, I don't ever want to sound or communicate that the details of prophetic things are not important. God gave them for a reason. And he did it this way and not another way for a reason. So they are important. But I do find sometimes as we were talking that if you never figure out who the fourth toe on the left foot of the beast is in Revelation, um, you know, that's one thing. But I have one. Thank you very much, Luis. But, but um, do get the message, the main thrust of what these messages are uh, concerning the return of the Lord and the saints receiving the kingdom. And there is something that will take place uh, in the future where justice will be delivered. And so we come to chapter 8, and the focus in chapter 8 uh, will be on the middle pair of empires, which are here represented as a bear, as a leopard, but over here a male goat and a ram with various uh, <laughs> accessories, if you will. Over here the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze. The Medo-Persian Empire, which melded eventually into the Persian Empire, which is Iran, for all practical purposes today, and the Grecian Empire. So the focus is now going to shift from four to two, from this as a whole to these two particular empires, with much of the emphasis on what happens with this particular empire. And we'll just have to kind of get a hold of that as we move along. Now, this isn't guesswork, uh, because you'll find that in chapter 8, Daniel uh, is told specifically in verse 20 of chapter 8 that the ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia or of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king and so on. So once again, we're not left to guess. And that actually, if we were to fast forward, looking at chapter 8, helps us to understand chapter 7, and we see the correspondence even with chapter 2, sort of at a backward approach to it, if you will. Take the things that we are told. So you really have three of the kingdoms specifically identified, don't you? you got Nebuchadnezzar, who was the head of gold. You've got the Medo-Persian Empire. You've got the Grecian Empire, and so on. So that's how you kind of develop the view of the whole. Easy for us to go back and see what this is once we get what we're told over here. So let's begin at chapter 8 at the beginning, and you find yourself now in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And a vision appeared unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. I saw in the vision, it came to pass, that when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. So now, whether because of governmental responsibilities, change in administration, whatever, he finds himself in Iran as opposed to where he was in Babylon when he first began. 
And as he's in the palace at that time, he sees this vision by the river of Ulai, or however it's pronounced, and he sees in verse 3, uh, before the river, a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. Now, with that in mind, I just want to draw one more uh, parallel, if I can do so here, and find it. I did. Voila. So remember in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar thinks no God can deliver out of his hand. Now you come to chapter 8. You see a ram and a goat. No one can rescue them from their power. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar commands to worship his God. The power of the little horn in this chapter stops the Jews' worship. Here, the Jews defy him, Nebuchadnezzar. That is, the three did, and they are preserved in the fiery furnace. Here, this one deifies himself as God, which is how that should read. We found God's ability to deliver demonstrated, and ultimately God's sanctuary and truth finally vindicated. So once again in the book of Daniel, we find that what develops here has its parallels in later chapters over here. But there will be a notable difference that you'll begin to see, that how things begin in chapter 2 is not how they proceed in the latter chapters. Things intensify, in a sense, and the heat gets turned up, and things expand beyond the immediate geographical locations of Iran and Iraq and what we call the Middle or the Near East and, and, and begin to take on more worldwide proportions and they expand beyond just what's going on in those kingdoms of the world at that time, as significant as they were, to things that take place in the world in a coming future day. And so we see there the structure and this pattern that begins to emerge. Uh, we remember that in Daniel there was the law of the Medes and Persians, which couldn't change. A law that was designed to force Daniel to disobey his God, which he did not do. In the second vision, you find a king, a fierce king, that seeks to change the times and the law. And often that expression is used in Old Testament to speak of the specific religious seasons. You know that Israel's calendar was not a traditional calendar like we have in that sense. It was all based upon the significant religious feasts, festivals, and observances that had been incorporated in, into the law of God. So that's how their times and seasons were arranged. A king will arise. And then finally, a third, third, this powerful king stops the people of God from obeying the law, bans the sacrifice, and so on. The emphasis then begins to switch, and you're going to note this repeated expression that is found if you look at, at chapter 8, verse 17. O son of man, for at the time of the end shall the vision shall be the vision. Verse 19, at the time appointed the end shall be. Verse 23, and in the latter time. And then in verse 26 at the end, for it shall be for many days. And so the emphasis 
uh, sort of switches to what will take place in the end. So moving back now to the identification that we were given in verse 20 and 21, verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and he touched not the ground, which is a symbolic expression to say that he moved so fast did this he-goat. And who was the he-goat? The king of Greece. And who was the one who spread with that rapidity? Alexander the Great. Remarkable. Student of Aristotle, schooled in his school, in his training, rose to the zenith of his power, conquered what was then of the known world, wept because he said, I have no more kingdoms to conquer, and died at either 32 or 33 years of age. Remarkable accomplishment for a human being, wasn't it? Now, when I say remarkable, remember that underneath these remarkable accomplishments, you're talking about wars and extermination of people and atrocities and all of that that, that was behind this beastly move, if you will. And so the goat came, and it had a notable horn between his eyes, and it came to the ram that had the two horns, which I'd seen, and it ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close under the ram, moved with collar against him, smote the ram, broke his two horns until there was no power in the ram to stand before him, cast him to the ground, stamped upon him. There was none that could deliver out of his hand. And it echoes in our minds a bit, it should at least, back to what we heard in chapter 3. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, to what was said in chapter 6 by Belshazzar, is your, was your God Daniel able to deliver you as he approached the mouth of the lion, lion's den? So you see that expression in verse 4? No man that could deliver. In verse Seven, none that could deliver out of his hand. And the goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and it became four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of that, one of them came forth, a little horn, which it waxed or grew exceeding great, and then in all these different directions. Now, when you begin to get into the history of what happened at this time, particularly when we come to chapter 10 and chapter 11, of the book of Daniel. Um, let me just give you a little bit of the historical background of which these prophecies certainly match and point us to. So out of the Grecian Empire, uh, the children of Alexander, when he died, the kingdom was divided basically up into four. And the prominent ones that came out of that, uh, from Seleucus, which became the Seleucids, and uh, Ptolemy, uh, the territories were Syria, or north towards Macedonia, Syria, and that, that particular area, and the Ptolemies down in Egypt. Now, though these were family members, <laughs> you know, modern-day political intrigue has nothing on, on these folks, okay? And so what they did between their marriages and their children and the, you know, sibling rivalry and, and all the rest, because these countries were vying, it is a remarkable trait of human character, isn't it, that you could have a whole empire, and not be happy with that. <laughs> and you want somebody else's empire. You see, even though you have a whole empire, you don't just stop there. You want more. And it's the greed and the, the ambition, you know, that drove some of these and so on. So anyway, out of this rises, um, eventually, Antiochus the fourth. there were three prior to him, 
and uh, he, he becomes known or takes the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, any of you that are familiar with Christian parlance and uh, certain terminology, you will know the word epiphany. It's used to speak of the coming of the Christ child in Christian terms. But this, uh, according to the Grecian festivals, was God manifest. He took that name unto himself, you see. And now we've moved a little bit further along, haven't we? Now, ultimately, you see a man who begins to exalt himself as if he is God, which is a, an ominous thing to think about, isn't it? Now, there was a nickname for Antiochus Epiphanes. wouldn't have been used to his face, but it was Antiochus Epitomenes, which meant the madman, <laughs> you see. But again, you wouldn't say that to Antiochus, uh, to his face. It's interesting to think, too, that he is called Antiochus. Guess where his capital was? Antioch. A couple of hundred years later, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Isn't that sort of ironic to see God ultimately having a victory even there? From the very place where this man came forth who takes to himself a divine title, in a sense almost deifying himself, well, ultimately they were first called Christians in the very place that this man was named for, Antiochus Epiphanes. And one of the things that happens is he becomes a, a thought model for us to, so that when we begin to see how Antiochus functioned and what he did, it provides for us a thought model or a prototype of greater things that are yet to come, of bigger things that are yet to come than the localized career of Antiochus Epiphanes. So you begin to read in verse 9 of his great military success and of his defiance and his persecution. And it is expressed this way in verse 10, even to the host of heaven. And he cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground and stamped upon him. Talking now about his treatment of the people of God. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the persecutions began. His career involved what is called uh, the Hellenization of the places that he conquered. So that if you wanted to have an empire, well, wherever he spread that particular culture, it spread its religion as well. How to unify a multicultural empire? Well, if you're going to unify a multicultural empire, you, um, you couldn't have part of the empire saying that we're different than everybody else or that our God is different from everybody else's God. No, you couldn't have that, you see. Everybody had to have a certain equality to have a multicultural empire survive. Well, of course, if you were the one in charge, you would make then your God the one that was the one who everybody would bow to in that sense, wouldn't you? Or you would have no God at all. The difference now with what happens to the Jews in persecution is that everything gets amped up. So imagine now historically again, if you were the nation of Israel, and over here to the south, you've got the Ptolemies or you've got Egypt. 
And up here to the north, you've got the Seleucids, Syria, Macedonia, and all that. And these two countries want to attack one another. Well, guess where they had to go? They had to go right through the land of Israel, didn't they? And so uh, there were many wars that were fought, not against the nation of Israel, but against one another that took place in the land of Israel. Because it was at that strategic point, if you were coming from Egypt or from elsewhere from the north, you see. So a lot of battles either took place or they went through there and they did a lot of things to the land on their way through one way or the other. But this is different. You see, while the Jews had been involved in battles before, Nebuchadnezzar had taken them captive and so on. What was different now was Antiochus purposely targeted the Jews religion. Other empires had not done that. They took them captive as did Nebuchadnezzar for various reasons, ultimately for God's purpose and reason and so on. But this was a specific targeting of the Jews' religion and of the one God that they confessed, openly, brazenly assaulting the Jews' religion. In the first attack on Jerusalem, Antiochus killed 80,000 people and took 40,000 Israelis as slaves. He banned the observance of their law. You were not allowed to observe the law. Now, you knew that if you were a, a good Israeli Jewish person, Hebrew, and you had a baby, well, when that baby was a certain age, eight days old, what did you have to do? circumcised, right, as a sign of the covenant and a seal of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. They were known as the circumcision as opposed to the uncircumcision. And I just hasten to say it wasn't just a medical procedure to them. It stood for something else, which I haven't the time to go into now. Antiochus forbade you to practice that rite of circumcision. And if he found that you as a parent, you as a mother had circumcised your child, he killed that child, hung it around the mother's neck, and cast the mother off the walls in the city of Jerusalem to her death. Imagine, now you're a godly Jewish woman. You have a child. What would you do? Would you follow what you felt the law of God told you to do? Would you flee from the country? Would you defy Antiochus and his laws? One of the saddest things of that era, one of the horrors of that era, if you will, is that many of the priests, the Jewish priests, were complicit. And they went along with this modernization and the Greek Hellenization of their culture and its advanced society and political gain and all the rest. Many of the priests went along. And uh, ultimately, in his supreme act of desecration, he rededicated the Jewish temple to Zeus or Jupiter and sacrificed a pig with the swine's blood poured onto the altar. And the significance of this is it came to be known as the abomination of desolation desolated, you see, the temple and that whole thing. 
Now, historically, it's fascinating to read strictly from that point of view. Historically, this led ultimately to the rise of those who are known as the Maccabees, Judas the Hammer Maccabees. They were so incensed at what was taking place that they rose up in revolt, for form, uh, formed a guerrilla band up in the mountains, and eventually defeated uh, the soldiers, took the temple back, cleansed and purified the temple, from which you get a practice that they still practice to this day, which meant the dedication, which is Hanukkah. They still, to this day, practice that. All of that grew out of this very period that had not yet taken place in the book of Daniel. But you see, one of the important things that we'll see when we get to chapters uh, 10 and so on is that the Jews who lived later, like even into the time of uh, Antiochus and so on, they could look back and see the match that was found in Scripture. Daniel said this was going to happen. Why would that be important? Well, it would be very important for one reason. They would know that what happened there was not yet the time of the end, which is one of the challenges in the book of Daniel. Particularly in this chapter, you read so many times about the end, but you have to understand the difference between certain endings that occurred and ultimately what is the end. Very important when it comes to prophetic things, you see. And so that's part of the relevance. How do we know that what happened in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes was not the end? I'm glad you asked. So we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we listen to the Lord Jesus as he instructs his disciples, Matthew chapter 24, about something that is yet to take place. Verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Verse 21, Then there shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world of this time. No sure there will ever be. And then, fast forwarding down, you see, verse 30, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and shall... All the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so I just selectively read through that passage in Matthew 24 there to show that the Lord said, when you see this happening, so that in the Lord's time, what he's talking about had not yet happened. And you couldn't just point back and say, but wait a minute. That already happened with Antiochus. No, what Antiochus did was a prototype. But there's something coming that's going to be like what he did, but it's going to be worse than what he did, you see. And so that was an important thing to, to, to realize. And we know that whatever the Lord's talking about there has not yet taken place for the simple fact he has not yet come in heaven in power and glory with the angels in the gathering and all the rest. So we're helped out there. But it was important for the Jews then, and important for us now, and important for a generation that's yet to come, perhaps, to realize that what happened back there historically and what the visions that Daniel saw pointed to would one day come in an, either, an even greater way, a more intense way, in a worldwide way, if you will. And so where we are in life, anti-God ideologies will continue. Press towards not having the uniqueness of a God, 
and press toward making it a crime for you to claim that your God is any different than anybody else, nothing new, going to continue, going to intensify, going to get worse, I believe, as the days go on. State-enforced pagan culture? <laughs> Think about it. You say, well, that, that's the way it is over there, not here. Wait a minute. Where does the culture that's being enforced upon us in this country come from? As I read my Bible, most of it doesn't come from God, does it? And state-enforced culture, some of which doesn't even make sense, to tell me that I don't know when my child is born, whether it's a man or a woman. You take simple... Uh, well, you don't even have to take biology tests for that, do you? <laughs> you just pull a little diaper down, then you'll know. I mean, God gave you that much sense. <laughs> but they're going to enforce upon it. You know, you think. I, I looked at a meme my daughter sent me recently of Mr. Potato Head pointing to Mr. Coffee and saying, you're next. I mean, is that all we've got to worry ourselves about in the problems in our society? Seems to me, too, that there's one big thing missing in that argument. If I recall, and even though I'm an old man now or so, I've earned the right to be called by some, um, I seem to remember there was a Mrs. Potato Head. Yes, there was a... How come we don't hear about Mrs. Potato Head? Anyway, as silly as that might sound to some of us, Laws that are enforced, don't call it pagan culture if you don't like that connotation, but culture that is enforced, that is decidedly opposed to what the Word of God teaches and will be enforced upon you by law. You'll be charged with hate crimes for certain things. It's already happening in parts of North America. Canada, of course, has never enjoyed the religious liberties that we have. Has already been experiencing it in a big way. But it's nothing new, as I said earlier. We may find it here more and more. So these anti-God ideologies will continue and so on. And ultimately, we're going to read about what takes place in uh, the book of Thessalonians, we're told. I'm going to turn there, Second Thessalonians in chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll break into the reading. Let's read from verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither, be, uh, neither by word, spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that as God he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, you can keep your place there if you like. I want to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 13, because it's far more important that you 
hear it from the Scripture than just me saying it. Revelation chapter 13. And the rise of the beast, and some of these things are going to be so familiar because you're going to say, hey, that sounds like just what we heard in Daniel. I stood upon the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. He had seven heads, ten horns. Hey, it's like we heard about in Daniel, right? Yes, yes. Brings us to a very important principle, which I'll mention in just a moment. And you'll notice that it says that uh, in verse 3, all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshiped the dragon. Satan, which gave power to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And of course, the second beast comes up out of the earth. He is able to do great miracles and wonders, making fire come down from heaven, verse 13, and causing an image of the beast to be made, and giving power to the image and bringing it to life for the purpose that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed, and so on. And you begin to see that in this passage and in Second Thessalonians 2, there is a very important interpretive principle that emerges from this. Um, it helps us tremendously to know if we're on the right track prophetically. Okay, Now I'm going to give you the big 25-cent words. And then I'll break it down for you a little bit. But it, it leads us to a principle that, that is called the harmonization of the eschatological passages of Scripture. That's 25-cent words, okay? What that simply means is this, that when you look at what Daniel says, when you look at what Zechariah says, when you look at what Ezekiel says, Isaiah says, what the Lord says, what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, what John says in Revelation 13, the correct interpretation of how these things will transpire is found partly, in fact, that they must harmonize. And we find they're all saying the same thing. In one way or form or another, what Daniel saw is what John's communicating here. And it's what Zechariah talked about, the coming of the Lord. And it's what the Lord expressed, harmonization of those passages that have to do with prophetic portions of Scripture. To jump in and pick any one of those out and say, well, that really wasn't for now. That's past. That was history. That's not for the future. These mean this. You don't have that harmonization, you see. And so I, I find that to be a very, very helpful thing. Back again to the practical side of this, what we saw in Daniel is also true. In verse 10 of Revelation 13, he that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the perseverance, the patience of the saints. The war made with the saints. The exaltation of this beast who deifies himself, takes upon himself divine dignities, even is expressed of him by the people who worship him. Who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? Those are terms that were used expressively in the Old Testament of Jehovah. Who is like unto Jehovah? And the answer, of course, was none. He is unique. And the violation of the very tenets of the very principles of the law of God that were given to that Jewish nation, which of the first was 
There's no other God to be had before me, and you shall not make an image or a likeness of anything that is in the earth or the heavens or the waters beneath. You will not bow down yourself to them and serve them, which is the very thing that happens in this future day as the beast and his cohort seek to force those to take the mark or not be able to buy and sell. I want you to hear me very carefully here because we have to be careful here. God has given us much information, some things he has not told us. I'm not saying that this is this. So I preface what I'm about to say by that. However, since this pandemic started, there's one phrase that's been echoing through my mind from day one that no man could buy or sell. If they shut down the economies and the businesses in the United States only, I would have cried conspiracy. But it has been worldwide. And look how quickly, for a variety of reasons, we followed along. Your business is not essential. Shut. (laughs) Yours is open. You're okay. Who decided that? shut down whole economies nobody could buy or sell in that day you couldn't buy or sell unless you had the mark I want to be very careful here again I'm not saying this is that but I remember last year listening to Bill Gates saying yes we probably will come to the day when um, there won't be any travel allowed unless there's proof of vaccination and probably the easiest way to accomplish that of course is with a microchip that's implanted I'm not saying that's this I'm simply saying I don't know the, the reasons for this pandemic but it's been unique in our lifetimes we've never seen anything like this Is it in part God is saying, hey, you remember that stuff I told you about in the book of Revelation that you didn't think was real and couldn't happen? (laughs) Look around. It can happen. It will happen on an even greater, more intense way in a coming future day. Perhaps part of what God is doing is like, look, you better wake up. Church, you've been thinking you're going to skate through this. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to have persecution. The saints down through the ages have always had it. Don't invite it. Don't pray for it. But don't think it's something that you're exempt from either, which is an interesting thing. And to remember that these things that are highly symbolic in the book of Revelation, these things are going to take place one day. And I ask the question again to you here this afternoon, are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I can tell you this, based on what I know of the Word of God, if you don't know Christ as Savior, you're not ready. You think, well, I'd never bow down to a man in that day. (laughs) There's going to be such a spirit of deception that's poured out on this world, such as this world has never seen before. I mean, this one's going to come along and do miracles. He's going to cause fire to come down from heaven. He's going to cause an image to come to life. So be ready. Because I want to show you one last thing. It's in chapter 14 and verse 9. There is an end. 
Chapter 14, verse 9, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So even in that day, you see, the challenge in that day to not bow, to not, well, not bow, kind of reminds me of going back to the book of Daniel, doesn't it? Whoever hears the music, what beat do you bow to? See, that day, three men at least stood and said, we will not bow. And note carefully what they did say. Yes, they said our God is able to deliver us. But he said, even if he doesn't deliver us, we know one day he will deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us from this, we'll still not bow. Now, it's much easier to steal ourselves and to feel our courage as we sit among a friendly crowd. <laughs> At least I think most are friendly here. <laughs> Be quite something in a different environment, won't it? Think back to those Jews and others who down through those centuries suffered. It wasn't just Jewish people who suffered around the world all the atrocities that have taken place in various cultures for the purpose of men who had great ambitious desires. But one day, see, that'll come to an end. And that one we saw in chapter 7, that Ancient of Days, the throne will be set up. The Son of Man will take the reins of government into his hand. We can't see it with these eyes but we believe it by faith, and that sustains us no matter how difficult times may get. I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> should we, what should we do? Where's the voice of authority? Seven minutes. Okay, and I promise, I promise, I always stop when I'm done. 